Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I hope you're staying safe and well during this difficult time during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also want to acknowledge that this May is Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, celebrating and recognizing the contributions and history of our Asian Pacific Islander community. I am soon wrapping up the second season of this podcast, which is centered on the theme 1975, the 45 year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War and the start of the Khmer Rouge rule over Cambodia. For this week's episode, I did a two part interview with my guest, Sina Sam, a longtime Cambodian American community leader from Washington State. She became the first Cambodian American woman to serve as the commissioner for the Asian Pacific American Affairs for. Governor Inslee's office in Washington State. She is the co-founder of the Khmer Anti-Deportation Group and is now serving as the field director for CRAC, otherwise known as Southeast Asia Resource Center. Now, here's a little story behind this episode. I've been wanting to get Sina on the season for the longest time, and we have had such a hard time coordinating times to get together because of our hectic work schedule. We've had to delay uh, this interview a few times. But uh, when we finally got together for this interview, we talked so much into the late of the night that we would talk for over two and a half hours. So this is why it's a two-part series. Uh, for this first part of this episode, I asked Cassina about her upbringing in Washington after her parents fled from the Khmer Rouge. She talked about her personal struggles with school at an early age. Her struggles will continue into her teenage years. When she was in high school, she became pregnant. It was an experience that would soon alter the direction of her life and the challenges it brought in her relationship with her family. She talked about being a teenage mother and how this would lead her to get involved in reproductive justice rights and then into community organizing. I hope you enjoyed this first part of the episode. The second part will be released following this. Thank you and stay safe, everyone. Also, Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or T-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on their Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. This is Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. So today I am so excited to have this special guest on for this week's episode. So her name is Sina Sam. How are you today, Sina? Hi, Randy. Thank you for having me. I'm good. <laughs> <My phone. laughs> yeah, well, thank you for thank you for coming on here. And I've heard so much great things about your work and your backstory. And I I'm trying to remember, we haven't met in person, but <laughs> <That's we got. laughs> But I had heard a lot about you the past few years, and it was through our mutual uh, connection with our friend, uh, Salong Chun, um, mm. over in Tacoma. He's an activist, artist, and he's a person that I've also had on for this podcast. So I am looking forward to connecting with you. Um, hopefully one day we'll be able to meet in person, but uh, for now, I'm just so glad that we've been connecting and I've been able to hear so much about your wonderful work in oh, Washington. So yeah, I was wondering if you can uh, introduce yourself and the work that you've been doing. 
Sure. Um, it's hard to follow up with so long. He's, <laughs> he's great. Um, but I think he will say the same thing about you too. Cause he's, <laughs> I'm sure he'll say the he's, same thing. He's a pro at interviews. So I usually uh, prefer for him to do any of this type of work for cage where you're on screen or talking about our work, but I'm happy to connect with you also, Randy. Um, and I so appreciate this uh, medium to be able to hold our stories and uh, share uh, thoughts on how to move our community forward and work together. And so thank you for having me. I am Sina Sam, uh, Khmer American 1.5 generation, uh, meaning I was born in a refugee camp during the uh, um, Southeast Asian um, war and displacement time period. Um, and I look forward to delving into that a little more when we talk about 1975. Um, my current work right now is with CAGE, the Khmer Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group. And I am also transitioning in as the new pol uh, field director. So director of field for the Southeast Asian uh, Resource Action Center, which is CRAC, um, a national civil rights organization um, for Southeast Asian Americans um, nationally. I am based in Washington state. Uh, however, a lot of my work is coordinating national campaigns and uh, connecting that to the frontlines work of um, anti-deportation for uh, Khmer American community as well as our Southeast Asian brothers and sisters and ally um, communities such as the Latinx community, um, black and brown, um, other communities who are impacted as well. Mm, thank you so much for giving us uh, an outline of the work that you've been doing. So um, to begin things off uh, for this season, uh, I have been exploring the theme of 1975 and the year is now 2020. So we are looking back 45 years now uh, of the anniversary. <clears throat> I don't even like to say the word anniversary, but to, uh, to reflect back on the 45 year mark on the beginning of the Khmer Rouge, which had killed over 2 million Cambodians. Uh, the, it was also the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War. And those events culminated in what was uh, the first mass wave of migration to uh, the labor camps and into America or to other Western countries. So when you hear the year of 1975, what comes to mind when you think about that year? Uh, 1975 um, has very, very special meaning to me, and I know it's it's dark um, period for us, uh, but it really connects me to my father, my pa. Um, before I knew the history, before I probably knew um, much English uh, growing up, um, I remember hearing about 1975, and as I uh, learned more and more, um, first, of course, in Khmer, because that's uh, my first language, um, and then later on picking up uh, English really quickly, um, and realizing there was something very, um, and it came about in um, very traumatic ways, because when my dad mentioned 1975, it's oftentimes in terms of um, families and brothers and sisters 
and friends um, and whole communities that he's lost in his lifetime. And so as a kid who's four years old or three or four, and um, I'm hearing stories of very violent um, graphic, um, not only scenes, but also scenarios involving my father's experience. Um, I didn't realize it then that it would be a reoccurring theme in our relationship, but by the time I was in um, like elementary school and had a good hold of English and became the primary um, translator for my family, um, a lot of us in our generation does that and still do that for a lot of our um, non-English speaking or um, uh, having difficulty in accessing language, um, accessibility to English community members. Uh, we we are the, those translators and interpreters. And at a young age, I remember <laughs> hearing 1975 and feeling always afraid um, when I would hear my dad talk about it because I connected it to, um, I didn't even recognize that it was really a period in time. I just knew it was numbers. Um, and then as I got older and really came to understand what had happened to my parents and how I got to uh, Seattle, Washington, um, where I lived and was growing up that 1975 is, <laughs> is more than just trauma. Um, I, I know April 17, 1975 in particular is uh, the day that Phnom Penh fell. And you know, now as an adult, I have this um, plethora of, or an abundance of knowledge about my parents and our history, um, our resettlement, uh, the war, because uh, I've gone out of my way to learn it. But as a child, uh, any of us growing up in the community, um, as refugee, uh, child like child refugees. Um, who are also the bridge between the elder generation and um, the next. It, it was really something that was scary and traumatizing at first. But now um, I've come to after I've learned so much um, about where I come from, where my parents come from, where so many of our Southeast Asian uh, refugee and immigrant communities um, come from and how we got here. 1975 is not, you know, the beginning of our story, but it's often the um, entrance to a lot of our um, identity in the U.S. But it's, I, I to me now, it's just, um, I know it's a, a year. Um, my dad will mention 1975 to every single person he talks to. <laughs> Um, and I know the stories are coming and that's how um, he deals with his post-traumatic stress, which is something I've learned as well through um, being familiar with what 1975 means. So now for me, um, when I think of 1975, um, I think of it as an opportunity to educate and talk to people um, about who we are and where we come from beyond 1975. And, um, into the future of what our community can be. Um, so at one point that was pretty much all I had as my identity though. When you started, and thank you so much for sharing, and when you started to hear stories about your father 
and your parents um, uh, reflecting back on 1975, how did it affect your relationship with them as you became fluent in English, as you became mm. a family translator? What was your relationship <laughs> like as you got older with them, especially when the references of that past would come seeping mm -hmm. into the family, especially when you yourself had, did not experience the full mm -hmm. uh, version of their trauma? Mm -hmm. uh, it was really, really difficult, and I um, would imagine um, at the time I probably felt really alone or um, uh, like an anomaly, like I was, uh, I had an odd family or childhood, um, and of course not until much later into my um, college years and adulthood did I realize it's part of our um, community narrative and experience that that's how we got here and so a lot of us struggle through a lot of the, the same issues and one of those is uh, trauma um, that our elders and those who have gone through the war and those maybe who haven't even gone through the war like ourselves we are still um, impacted by um, uh, intergenerational trauma uh, which is um, we feel um, it impacts us in the same similar uh, mental and emotional illness type of ways, even if I haven't gone through what my parents have gone through. Um, and so for me, there was um, a lot of fear, frustration, um, uh, you know, uh, embarrassment or shame. Um, growing up in terms of feeling alone, like there was something odd about my family um, or something negative about our, the way uh, we lived compared to what um, I understood the culture was that I was learning in school and, mm. you know, what was on TV and mainstream culture in America. Yeah. Did you have any siblings uh, growing up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm the eldest um, of uh, three, uh, two other sisters. So I have two younger sisters and we're all two years apart. Um, but for the, the most part, being the eldest, especially as a daughter, um, I, I learned early, you know, how to take care of them and um, being expected to sacrifice and mm. you know th those things were frustrating <laughs> growing up in American culture where yes. you're taught a lot of individualism and um, you're encouraged to speak up and uh, um, be um, aggressive and mm. outspoken and the the values that are um, encouraged in children, at least when I was growing up, where like mm. almost the opposite of what I'm being taught at home with my parents. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic for me because I was also the oldest uh, growing up and I had two mm. brothers, they're twins, and they're about close to less than three years apart. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> and while, and obviously there's a, there's a gender disparity uh, and how mm -hmm. Southeast Asian men or Southeast Asian boys and girls are raised, especially if you're the oldest, you're expected to sacrifice for a family and for men, uh, for young boys, they're expected to learn how to be independent, to learn how mm -hmm. to take care of other people, to, uh, to uh, take on 
a typical masculine-centered work. Uh, I know as a kid growing up from myself, I was terrified of being thrusted into the pressure, into the spotlight that I had Mm to be this leader for my brothers, that I had Mm to to, uh, be the torch bearer for my family. And so, you know, there's a burden of being the oldest on on both sides that we do have this expectation to sacrifice our time, but also to uh, to be the face of our family, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. and and with your family dynamics, how did it affect your upbringing in school and the way you were taught? And, and could you describe the kind of school that you were in and the sure. neighborhood that you were growing up in sure. Washington? Um, I think, uh, now that I'm at a place where um, I think I'm pretty prominent in the work that I do and in the communities that I work with, uh, some people do um, are surprised to find or um, may have assumptions on what my background or childhood was like. And really, uh, I was like, I struggled so hard in school. I was like, <laughs> failing or I didn't learn how to read mm-hmm. and write until I was in the second grade um, mm-hmm. that's about eight years old um, or you know do math and I just kind of got by I remember um, like copying other kids or just <laughs> imitating what I thought <laughs> I should be doing and it's mainly because um, uh, being the oldest and I'm sure you've experienced some of it too where you're the first to um, interface with learning um, what uh, mainstream cult- American culture is and so if you're um, if you're social at school and you come home and you're rambunctious it's you know discouraged by your parents because they mm-hmm. they expect you to be like um, more um what is the word in Khmer I'm thinking like uh so you know like (laughs) um so pee up and uh and so it's um I really struggled for a long time um unfortunately my relationship with my dad uh I've had a like in particular it's been really poignant because I I see him as someone who I've learned so much from but has been someone who has also really challenged me in terms of um, uh, uh, conflict. (laughs) We fought a lot and um, that was not good because, you know, you're not supposed to talk back to your parents or Mm -hmm. um, if you do, it shouldn't be in a manner that's um, at all aggressive. Um, And so, when I was failing class or (laughs) when um, I wasn't doing good. Um, I had to find ways to maneuver, um, you know, not getting into trouble with my parents, but also um, trying to maintain the things as a child that was fun or um, helped me get through, you know, like um, the stress of, being at home and seeing the contradictions of, um, for me as a child, having to figure out, is it okay for me to, like, if I ask them, I know I can't ask them for help with homework um, because my parents' expectation is that 
you know, the classroom and while I'm at school is going to teach me everything I need. And so the pressure of what I'm learning in school and um, outside of my house uh, really caused a lot of, uh, I, I would say maybe anger or, mm. um, um, you know, like it, it can be internalized into depressive types of um, personality traits, like, you know, um, acting out um, uh, as a child or mm. um, really pulling in and not um, wanting to talk to others and being antisocial. So for me, school didn't come easy <laughs> because um, I had a lot of other things um, that I was, you know, like m managing, um, having to um, mitigate for myself all like every day is, um, it was difficult to learn in that environment where, um, you know, I would want to play outside, but I couldn't, um, you know, do it to the extent that I would like because I'm a girl or um, uh, I couldn't go on like, you know, certain things like uh, outside. Oh, and we were poor too, which is another common thread. Mm -hmm. um, growing up, I definitely um, knew early on that we were um, less um, advantaged than, you know, my peers. And, but it was kind of common in the projects that I grew up in. And so, um, for me, I would say I was a bad or mediocre student for a really long time um, until, surprisingly enough, <laughs> my pregnancy. <laughs> so um, I, I'm sure we'll delve into that as well. But up until high school, I think I had not until the, uh, my sophomore year, um, freshman and sophomore year of high school, did I really um, take school seriously in terms of um, wanting to excel. So I pretty much almost failed like elementary school, going through middle school, um, would try to um, bond with my peers and like uh, skip classes. Um, I mean, there were certain areas where of course I excelled at um, but it wasn't the traditional ways of judging a child. I think um, for my childhood if you looked at me um, then you probably would have never <laughs> expected me to eventually you know go on to college and mm. um, be where I'm at now. Yeah no thank you and because I also grew up, and the way I grew up, uh, my parents were very strict, specifically with my dad. And uh, and being the oldest, I felt so much intense pressure from him mm -hmm. to succeed. Mm -hmm. And each time that pressure would affect how I would do in school. I wasn't quite pro proficient in English. I was terrified to ask mm -hmm. for help uh, to mm -hmm. my teachers. Oh, yes, yes. And to <laughs> my parents, of course. Because mm -hmm. as you mentioned, uh, everything that we had learned in school was what we had to absorb. And mm -hmm. that was not their responsibility to mm -hmm. continue that. So mm -hmm. it was very challenging. And I absolutely, uh, it, your story resonates a great deal with mine because mm -hmm. I was uh, a very mediocre student. Uh, it's hard <laughs> for people to believe that too when I tell people that 
um, oh yeah, you're very smart, you're very articulate, not to toot my own horn, but yeah, growing up, uh, definitely in junior high and part of high school, I really struggled um, to good stretches. I struggled mm-hmm. in math, I struggled in science. I did well in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, and funny enough, because I was a person who couldn't speak English for a good part, the first couple of years of my life. And, mm-hmm. and then I would actually end up excelling at that instead. Uh, although uh, for my dad, that was not what he re- really wanted. Okay. He wanted it from a math and science standpoint. So yeah, hearing the, hearing that story, it, it's also kind of shows the model minority myth right (laughs) that uh we're not all straight a's and b's and obedient students that you know our Mm -hmm. our own childhood was also clouded with complexities um troubles Mm -hmm. and also the kind of environment that we grew up in and and not having the validation from our own families and also Mm -hmm. from the school environment with our teachers that we grew up with although i've had better relationships with my teachers but but for a lot of our own community members it's mm-hmm. a different experience and it's not a linear mm-hmm. one-size-fits-all experience at all Asian kids are you know excelling getting honor rolls and mm-hmm. and for people mm-hmm. like us we didn't achieve uh, most of that and mm-hmm. there's a lot of shame mm-hmm. and there's also this internalized mm-hmm. uh, shame and this anger resentment that we carry through to our own parents because we were put on to take on so much that felt unequal versus our own peers in schools uh, where they can be kids and for us we had to be adults at a very early age handling their responsibilities Mm -hmm. being translators uh, being able to Mm -hmm. help them with their taxes uh to Mm -hmm. help them (laughs) help my mom with her citizenship test and uh Mm -hmm. and then having to just be home studying most of the time and not being able to go out to basketball games and Mm -hmm. so yeah there there was resentment uh Mm -hmm. from me growing Mm -hmm. up and and i can kind of sense from our conversation that that Mm -hmm. was also building up in your teenage years Mm -hmm. uh i was wondering what you can say about your part of i know you were going into your teenage years but what can you say (laughs) about that experience as you got older and as you became Mm -hmm. more aware about your parents influence on you and also Mm -hmm. the kind of friends you were hanging out with that had your influence as well so you know as teenagers our parents influence becomes lessened right and it becomes this um okay i already you've already taught me this much (laughs) and you're starting to see things that don't seem to make sense and then Mm -hmm. you start to wonder well you're not necessarily Mm -hmm. correct in this so this whole idea of rebellion comes into place so teenage rebellion what a surprise, what a coincidence. Uh, <laughs> so I was wondering uh, what that period was like for you um, as you started to kind of weigh in about your own parents' influences versus um, the environment that you were surrounded with. Right, well, those are great points and uh, relational um, experiences that I can definitely share with you um, as well. I feel like, uh, you know, teenage uh, years in um, many societies is a coming of age time where there's a lot of changes um, happening for a young um, person. And um, and so that I feel like is a natural time already where there's angst and 
um, a lot going on uh, for, you know, transitioning from adolescence to more of adulthood. Um, and in that period, uh, for us, unfortunately, <laughs> um, our, for our generation 1.5, or um, even our bong bongs, our, our older brothers and sisters, um, cousins who you know came here who were born in Cambodia but came here at very young ages too um, with us who were born in refugee camps or along the way um, uh, not quite the you know uh, second generation like my son is um, it, it's 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 hard it's there is no I don't believe there's <laughs> anybody's um, experience that uh, I would say that they would say it was easy um, just because coming um, from the shared background that we have in um, our elders and our parents, um, our grandparents, our family, or if we didn't come with family, um, whoever brought us here. I, I know there's a lot of orphans probably um, who may not even have any blood relatives here who were just um, brought here by the sheer kindness of others. Um, it's it's a um, it's a passage of um, experience that I it would be very rare or um, uncommon that um, folks in with our shared experience isn't touched by some sort of intergenerational trauma, isn't touched by um, disparity um, issues such as poverty or um, in, uh, limited English um, access or um, resources to help us successfully succeed in our resettlement um, in a brand new country. And so what I struggled with, uh, of course I have this knowledge now as an adult, but as, you know, a, a child growing up, not knowing um, why we're here and how we got here and why my parents are the way they are and our community are the way they are and where I may have found um, discrepancies or disagreement with. Um, I didn't understand where um, those traits may be a consequence of. Um, so I, did feel um, frustration and resentment and, you know, like, why are we this way? And mm -hmm. um, uh, how can I get out of it? <laughs> and, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like what's wrong with me or what's wrong with us? Um, so I, I, and in a way, because I had that burden of um, having to reconcile that and I saw in my peers and I saw in mainstream culture other people were not um, having to uh, deal with that burden or even think about it or even knowledgeable about this type of um, challenge or suffering that uh, one may be going through in you know childhood or uh, teenage years and so you know like not having others who um, you can share that uh, experience with openly at least. Um, mm -hmm. So there may have been some unspoken sharedness when you can see it in others in your community. Um, as I grew up in like uh, public housing for a long time, mm 
my family did not get out of public housing until I was in high school, mm. um, close to high school. So um, I think for me, I, at that time, probably really uh, when I would argue with my parents or have differences, I would think um, like they're so cruel or <laughs> they're <Yeah>. so mean. <laughs> Um, they're so uh, not understanding and uh, why can't they be more loving or, you know, why can't they be like other parents or like, you know, full house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, uh, that's, it's, I feel like that's kind of normal when you come into an environment and your community and your culture, um, your history is not taught to you. And mm -hmm. the people who have it are so traumatized that they can't talk about it. Um, right. It's just, they, um, a lot of them, a lot of, you know, my parents and elders, the difficulty they have in just being what I thought, you know, why can't you just be normal and um, loving and, yeah supportive <laughs> and encouraging and yeah. positive mm. um it's not because they don't want to be i don't believe i i think as an adult now uh, and especially as a parent myself i think more so in their shoes imagine going through a genocide imagine yeah. <laughs> you know the atrocities you you must have um gone through and i've heard these stories you know like i said i've heard 1975 is probably like one of the first words i heard coming um, from my dad in english um so i was aware of this and i've heard the stories but um like i said reconciling that as a child and then into my teenage years um there's a, a certain amount of maybe selfishness or self-centeredness where um i I learned or I um, adapted as the, the better way to do things, which is to try to um, go for your own happiness, center your own happiness. And that's a very individualistic way to do it. And you can't help it because as a product of American society, um, communalism and uh, you know sacrificing for others and your family and things like that is not an automatic um, characteristic trait. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so and you, you bring up a good point, especially when we we hear about our parents' trauma and we get so frustrated um, with the way they raised us. And mm -hmm. hearing about their experiences through arguments, through unexpected mm -hmm. ways because oftentimes mm -hmm. that trauma is so deeply embedded that it's internalized and it gets projected it gets manifested in very unhealthy ways it affects the relationship mm -hmm. with their children or their community or other relatives and the way they function in a society that was not at all affected by the genocide so mm -hmm. and also keep in mind that um, when the refugees came in, and I know my mom told me her story, a lot of those folks had to go right to work, like within days. Mm -hmm. And there was mm -hmm. no time for them to yeah. heal. There was no time for them to understand mm -hmm. uh, what winter weather actually looks like, you know, that you really need to have a winter coat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's culture shock uh, and times 10. And right. our parents never had time 
to cope with the experiences that they had to endure as right. young adults, children, or mm-hmm. our grandparents as adults, mm-hmm. and then coming into a country that uh, that they have no blueprint knowledge of or right. a, a way to survive and and how to set their children up for success. And right. we oftentimes have to find what that looks like just by searching and what our parents think may be successful keys to success is not what we experience and not what we're able to find as we unfortunately have to uh, Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to also share with you I know we had talked about this but during your teenage year there was a a very pivotal moment in your life that was very life-changing for Mm -hmm. you and I was wondering if you can share that because I know um that is not an easy experience to share, keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But I also know that, you know, in talking with you, you've also been, you know, very uh, open about it. And, and especially with your uh, relationship with your son now. Uh, but I also think it gives a important context to understanding what the community, our community was like, especially mm-hmm. growing up as young adults, living in a country that is still so foreign to us and that does not look after people like us that does not offer resources and um and um and a form of equality you know in terms of what we need and in terms of getting access to better resources for school better resources of knowledge about mental health sex education Mm -hmm. i mean it's still a problem across the board but when you come in as a minority it just amplifies it another several layers so i was wondering if you were able to share uh, mm-hmm. that uh, the pivotal moment that really changed your life uh, as a teenager sure yeah um so i talked a bit about how you know there's kind of some natural um angst that happens around teenage years for um a lot of folks including myself um at that time i um I mentioned by my freshman and sophomore year of high school, I was thinking about planning for my future a little bit more because I had just made it through middle school and um, thought, and really, (laughs) to be honest, the driving force of why I was starting to think about my future was because I wanted a way out of my household. away from my parents, where I could have more independence, where I could potentially um, do the things um, I I wasn't allowed to do living with them, um, such as going out or um, dating. And (laughs) so the pivotal thing that happened um, anyways, is um, I happened, and I've always been um, a child who has been, uh, very hard-headed or, you know, kabarang. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had that trait, um, whether I'm, uh, um, you know, uh, duking it out with my parents and conflict um, growing up or, uh, and now it's translated into um, a characteristic that I use uh, to my advantage or to the benefit of the community mm-hmm. because um, I will uh, use that um, leaning that I have towards not giving up <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, 
enforcing kind of um, what I feel is really important to me or what I feel is right. Um, and so um, growing up, I, when I saw instances of um, bigotry or mm-hmm. um, discrimination or prejudice that was I felt was unfair, um, such as maybe, you know, boys can do certain things that girls can't do, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, gender and um, type of disparity or uh, justice. Uh, I noticed those things. And then, um, you know, racially, I noticed um, anti-Blackness um, or colorism is more accurate in our community. Um, how dark is bad, light is good. Um, so I definitely, growing up very conscientious, I've always had that um, in me. So by the time I was in high school, um, I uh, really tried a little more to get better grades, attend class, um, and <laughs> um, and I ended up at a high school I didn't want to be at because my dad wanted it um, to be a school where it was predominantly white or in a white neighborhood, and so I was not allowed to go to my uh, the schools of my choice where my friends went <laughs> and I'm sure their thought process was they want to get me away from um, mm. other kids who they felt was maybe bad influence but you know who's to say I wasn't the bad influence you the troublemaker so you know I ended up at this high school and um, funny enough the very first day of school actually um, I uh, had uh, met a guy who, um, from that very first moment on, we um, really clicked in terms of um, sharing about our um, concerns with our families and um, the things we were noticing with um, what, at that time, I didn't recognize it as um, racial, um, you know, like justice issues or social justice issues, but, that was my partner for 20 years after that. Wow. But uh, uh, yeah, I we secretly dated for a year and a half because my parents could never know. Of course. <laughs> um, and I think at that time, I, as I was, uh, I was taking on for myself a little more agency than to say, oh, it's all my parents' fault. This is bad. Or if I lived you know, in a different place, or if I had a different family, or if I had, you know, money, or if I had um, nicer clothes, or, um, you know, like, better education, or whatever it was that I thought at the time, as a 14-year-old, would make my life better, I kind of started taking ownership of that for myself, and um, thinking, uh, uh, I'm sure it wasn't the best in terms of feeling like I knew everything, but I definitely wanted to take steps for the first time, like thinking about um, getting good grades and maybe going to college um, eventually. And having this partner at the time, you know, we didn't know we were going to be together for so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we did eventually um, end up with an unplanned pregnancy mm. uh, a year and a half into our relationship. And um, I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's TMI, but in our relationship, <laughs> we were very like, responsible though there was um you know i went to the health center i utilized um the Mm. public uh health center or the center at my school um the nurse there um 
there mm. was birth control involved and, um, you know, trying to be preventative about um, the ways in which we wanted our relationship to be. And, <laughs> and you know, it just happened, the unplanned pregnancy did happen. Like, it was my, the worst nightmare in the world. Mm. Um, mm. I didn't know how I was going to survive it then. Uh, my parents didn't even know. I mm. was, had a boyfriend. Um, and, and on top of that, just to mention, he is uh, black, he's African American, and so mm -hmm. he's not Khmer or Asian. Um, and I know how my uh, dad feels about, um, you know, he's always said that uh, he uh, would prefer we be married to other Khmer people or <laughs> other Asian people, or, you know, like, um, I, I that was their preference, but I knew that with like a black person, that was going to be his worst nightmare. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know if I would survive that at the time, honestly. Um, but uh, the re one of the highlights though that came out of it now as an adult, you know, I'm okay. And maybe yeah. there's a little luck involved in that too. Um, but the partnership I had has always been very strong. and. Um, uh, supporting one another and uh, once we um, decided to be parents and uh, raise our child together um, we've always had a really strong partnership in co-parenting and I think wow. that is what we have to show for it today as mm. my son is like getting ready to graduate college oh my gosh that's <laughs> Yeah, and it's mainly because uh, of the, that early on were discussions we had communicating what um, was important to us in like planning for the future. Um, even though now we had this catastrophic, uh, really, um, I mean, it was the scariest thing I've ever had to face. Mm. In life. <laughs> I cannot imagine what your parents must have felt because I will tell you like as a teenager I think it's kind of funny like from my experience because as a teenager I knew nothing about sex I actually failed <laughs> I felt sex uh, for the record here and uh, my only conversation that my mom has ever had to talk to me about sex god forbid I was, she basically said Randy are you having sex he's like and I said no <laughs> she, she asked said, in Khmer or in no in Vietnamese. No, oh, she in actually, Vietnamese. Oh, well, wow. she actually asked me in English. She actually asked me in English, and she was very nervous when she asked that question. And I said no, and then she said, "Well, good, then don't have sex." And I was like 15 years old, and I'm like, "Well, all I could say is that I was back to doing teenage stuff along the way." So, how old were you? I was 15 years old. Oh, right around. <laughs> it, it was. I mean, it's 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 hilarious when I look back at it, but honestly, I. I did not have much of a concept of what sex right. is. I mean, obviously yeah. my body changed and I didn't understand my own body the mm -hmm. way I, I should have. And also being a queer man, it, it certainly mm -hmm. builds up another layer of yeah, blood. Nothing. But yeah, yeah, and then in your case, because you were just starting to understand uh, of sexual health and mm -hmm. taking the preventive steps, uh, after you got pregnant, Mm -hmm. besides having to have these very difficult conversations with your parents, mm -hmm. but also was a school supportive 
of mm. being a partner and and helping you become parents? Um, I would have to say, and I really kind of want to hear more about your also experience a little bit. If you can share, maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> the the layers of you know like. Um, the things we have to manage in our generation around, you know, our identity and, you know, secrecy of whatever we may be going through because we can't, we have no one to talk to and other and no support services really, yeah. or, you know, anywhere. Um, you know, at the time I, there was no one I could go to yeah. that I felt like, um, you know, in some ways the, the work that I do and the person that I am today is I do it for myself. Like mm -hmm. in terms of if I, um, if, you know, uh, little Cena or teenage Cena had had been able to have someone to go to what would that person look like and I think that drives a lot of that advocacy work that I do um, not just in um, the Khmer community but also with other movements in um, uh, reproductive justice and yeah. um, in terms of like I really my movement work started in health and I was a health advocate. And so it's moved, those skills have just moved along to immigration mm. and deportations. Um, and they also are connected with health too. Yeah. With immigration. Yeah, definitely. And, yes, absolutely. There's no yeah. question about it. So yeah. it, it, it's no surprise that, um, that it climbed into these different mm -hmm. areas. And mm -hmm. you're not the first one that I've known that has started in health and somehow, you know, navigated to immigrants and to, uh, other levels of uh, advocacy mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. I kind of delved away a little bit, but. Uh, sure, with your school, parents, yeah. Uh, the school, in, school. in terms of uh, support for us as parents, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I should be brutally honest about um, this part, but I think I will, just because perhaps, okay. um, you know, I think, I want to dispel any assumptions people may have about me or myths around, you know, what creates success. And so um, really at that time we had, I had a really supportive um, student health center and nurse in particular who worked there. And she was the one who actually, you know, was able to, um, and this is how I understand it now as an adult, I recognize certain policies are in place that allowed for me as a teenager to have access, free, um, private, uh, accurate um, information and uh, reproductive um, health um, options at that time. And so the nurse um, was the one who was able to uh, give me the birth control in the first place. And in some ways, I, I think adults, and others who may be, you know, like anti-sex education and mm -hmm. um, uh, sex abstinence only, you know, extra, yeah, <laughs> abstinence only um, would say, you know, like that is like a slippery slope that allowed me to get pregnant or something where if you have birth control, but in actual, you know, uh, teenagers or um, young folks or any folks, if they're going to engage in um, sexual activity uh, that's going to happen with or without <laughs> contraceptives and so I was fortunate to have that access but the, we it, we don't know if it was like a fluke where <laughs> um, 
you know, the pregnancy just happened anyways, or, um, but we did have the option at that time because the nurse was so supportive that I confided in her right away, even mm. though she didn't quite understand the gravity of uh, this life-changing um, situation I was in because like, um, you know, I wasn't sure if my dad was just going to lose it and I would be like kicked out or if he was, you know, going to like throw me across the room, mm. <laughs> act violently. I, um, I had no idea how uh, violent or um, temperamental the reaction would be. And so uh, there were options of, you know, allowing for adoption or abortion. And the part of me being brutal <coughs> this is that uh, we definitely considered the option of abortion mm. at that time. And I appreciate it so much um, in my life experience to be able to have that option because even though obviously <laughs> I didn't have it <laughs> um, and I now do reproductive justice advocacy and um, policy support for it because um, if I didn't have that option, I wouldn't be as informed as I am about my body, about um, the agency I can have over planning the rest of my life as a parent. So that really allowed me to start thinking in critical ways about choices. Um, and uh, uh, my son's father and I at the time being uh, Teenagers in crisis, we definitely considered that option of abortion. And um, the only real reason we uh, um, didn't um, go down um, that uh, path is because um, by the time that I found out I was pregnant because I was a student athlete, I was actually too far along to have an abortion in Washington mm. State. Um, I was already uh, three months, I believe. And so uh, the nurse at the time had, um, and I don't know if this is TMI again, because it's bodily. It's okay. <laughs> I think, I think, I think it helps give context mm, okay. um, to, to the discussion because I mean, especially for a guy like myself, I mean, it is a privilege that I don't have to go through, <laughs> sure. do this. I mean, this is why men who are making laws <laughs> not be in a position to exactly. make those decisions on women who yeah. do not have especially for those who do not have that experience of having to yeah. give birth and be put in that position too yeah so at the time i since i was a student athlete i was doing cross country um i've been a pretty active kid growing up too but um uh, the nurse had assumed i was not as far along as i was because i was having a very irregular um, menses or uh, menstruation uh, periods during uh, the the birth control, you know, like, and she just assumed that um, I was, my body was just adjusting to hormones. And so by the time that we realized we were pregnant, um, I was already really far along, but I wasn't showing at all. Um, mm. Yeah. And so at that point, we had really considered that option because if we were able to do it and then not have my parents find out um, or his parents, um, would that be something that we would want? And um, we definitely tried um, to 
weigh the options and consider take it into consideration. And uh, when we found out that we couldn't go that route, I mean, we had no other choice but to mm -hmm. look at the other options that the nurse had given us. And thankfully, we had that service because I know of like so many others um, and my peers, you know, other um, girlfriends or students that I knew of, um, like there were folks uh, who would just disappear from school if they were pregnant, like you just wouldn't see them mm. anymore. And there would be just like rumors of what may have happened to her. Mm. Um, and for me, I am so glad that I um, received the counseling I did in terms of what my options were, because then when um, the option of adoption was there, I really thought about it like okay when my son's like his age right now could I live with that and you know me 15 and pregnant that was like a really heavy decision to make I couldn't have predicted how my life would go and so I really weighed out um, with my partner um, what we were realistically and willing to do um, and we made the choice that um, I would move out. <laughs> so I moved out at 15, um, wow. moved into his household. He was living with his sister and she was, I mean, she wasn't happy about the situation, but um, she was a little more understanding than um, his parents were and my parents were. And I think the hardest thing outside of um, seeing my mom, um, the last day when I left the house and I kind of never moved back um, with them in the same way, even though we have a pretty uh, good relationship or okay relationship now is um, my mom's relationship with me is really uh, close, but also there's a lot of um, unspoken um, distance and conflict too and so she even though i knew she wanted to support me and allow me to stay and um it, i mean I, I didn't stay with them without my dad being angry <laughs> about it and um you know the whole community uh you know looking down on them or whatever they feared would happen if people found out that their teenage daughter was pregnant um, I knew for her, thinking about the gender lens of um, burden as well, is that she had no real power or control to, um, or that she felt she could do in that situation. Um, and so um, I told her um, when I was leaving, and I, I think to this day, I still remember her face because um, that, I mean, my sisters were crying too, and I told them, and I left while my dad was at work, so he wouldn't, um, try to stop me or, you know, anything violent occur, um, but I knew I was putting my sisters and my mom in a really bad position because then my dad, when he finds out, uh, would probably take out his anger on them. Um, um, but I really had 
for me at the time, I felt like I had no choice because if I wanted to have um, a different um, future for my son uh, and be able to raise him, I, I wouldn't be able to do that successfully in the environment that I was in. So, yeah. Um, it was hard. <laughs> it was not, you know, some, uh, when I do tell my story, oftentimes people are like crying or like, they feel so bad for me. And, um, and I think what probably allowed me to get through it. Okay. Is I, I mentioned earlier, um, the pivotal thing that happened in my life was that I, even though it was the hardest and at the time I didn't know if I would be able to survive it literally, you know, if I wasn't going to like, um, maybe be suicidal, which is a real thing for yeah. hardship. <laughs> or if, you know, would I be able to get a job or would I be able, you know, to like really um, care for and raise a child I, at 15? I didn't know any of those things. Um, so it was, I, I'm sure it's nothing like my parents have gone through in their life. But for me, that's kind of, you know, like, uh, that was my life challenge and struggle. Um, uh, and um, I think what really allowed for me to get through it was that I, instead of focusing on myself or within um, the people in my family, I had a new being, a new human being to yeah. think about and um, and it's nothing of that, you know, like mushy or um, uh, what folks maybe consider like natural matern uh, maternalistic nature or anything. I don't think uh, it was me being maternalistic or like now becoming a mother, all of a sudden I'm like this responsible person. I think um, it just gave me the um, perspective in life and the will and the hope that probably my parents had when they had me to you know survive to mm. bring these children over to do whatever you could to um make sure you get to point b or you know that you still mm -hmm. survive and so i think that kicked in for me and really understanding my parents a lot more that um i can see now like uh they probably had they just worked with what they could to get me and my sisters to where we are um with you know all their flaws too we, we probably don't think of our parents as um you know like uh, human beings <laughs> with desires and flaws um growing up as children we probably you know want to see them as protectors and responsible and um guides and um supportive and sometimes you know me at 15 being a kid i'm like it clicked for me like oh <laughs> like so, there's no right way to be a parent either. No. Um, <laughs> and there's no right way for us to be, you know, their children. Um, it's hard all around. It's just probably mm. in different ways. Yeah. And oh so my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being so candid and also like really diving deep into a very personal um, part of personal part of your life, especially when you're dealing with the traumas of your parents' relationship that was very fractured and also reconciling with the fact that you are a teenage mother you had to really rethink about 
what does my future look like? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, with your partner, obviously with your child, knowing that your focus is now centered on a living being and that your own hopes and aspirations have been in a way compromised. But <clears throat> you had to drop out of high school from mm-hmm. my understanding, right? Mm-hmm. And when you reached that decision to get back into school, what moments led you to see yourself reclaiming um, your own desires, your own goals, while trying to find a future for you mm-hmm. and your partner and your child, uh, mm-hmm. what their future could look like for them? Like, mm-hmm. I, I was wondering about your own, um, what, what your own take is, especially when mm-hmm. you had to go through this very difficult period in high school and then having to drop out and then going to make the decision to, uh, to start all over on your academic career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, I, I wish I could say, like, I had this game plan and, you know, like. <laughs> not so easy when you're, uh, not so easy when you're still a teenager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, no, um, and I'm sure others who find themselves, you know, in fortunate places after going through um, surviving whatever calamity in their life, um, they, they probably would have not been able to predict where they would end up afterwards. Um, for myself, I didn't see it as like, um, you know, in 20 years, this is what I want to do. Because at that time, uh, it was the immediate need of, um, you know, like finding income. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we're, at that time, I was still really poor. I mean, probably even more poor now that I don't have my parents' support. Um, how was I going to support um, another human being and raise them in ways that I would want to be able to do for myself if I was their parent, which, you know, I am. (laughs) Um, I just, it was really literally day by day, like wake up, think about um, our necessities first, paying rent, um, groceries, clothing, diapers, um, hospital, getting, you know, like everything just to make sure we're still alive. Um, And so our bare necessities, I think once um, I was able to achieve that and, you know, get a job, um, I thought about, and uh, the partnership I had, we, even though we were really struggling and um, had a, a really difficult time uh, getting our foot um, sturdy in terms of necessities. We we have always shared the value of education um, and um, getting away from our family's <laughs> um, cycle of whatever it may be, whether it's poverty or violence or um, trauma. Uh, So we recognized that at a young age that we didn't want to duplicate those things. And um, really the easiest way at the time that I I felt I could do that was to um, better myself in terms of gaining um, more education, to be able to have more opportunities. Um, I've 
always worked, you know, like after moving out from my parents' house, I've always had a job. Um, and I knew I would want to be able to um, be a person to my child where I could try and give um, him, uh, his name is Salon, give Salon um, a life that wasn't as hard as mine. And in order to do that, um, I needed to accrue a social, um, political, economic um, substance and value and um, uh, yeah, a way to, to achieve that. And so um, that was like the, the, the main idea behind why I, after I dropped out of high school, which I was really upset with my dad for forcing me to do. <laughs> um, but once I moved out and realized it was in my hands, um, for a long time, we were able to work out a schedule with, um, within our small um, family is, you know, switching off work and school. So I did night school and part-time school for a really long time. Um, and uh, my partner did the same or he would um, be able to do like a more traditional trajectory of uh, like I got my GD, he graduated mm -hmm. high school. Um, I went uh, to night school and got my um, associates community college degree. He was mm -hmm. able to have get his bachelor's degree. Wow. Um, so slowly and then um, I finally got my bachelor's and he got his doctorate. Um, wow. <laughs> so it's, it was yes. really taking it day, literally day by day. Wow. Um, as much as we tried to plan for, you know, like the next five years, 10 years, uh, you know, like we just, the way we, our family started there, we just had to um, find ways to survive and then um, ways to just increase um, our livelihood and education and access to resources and um, providing for a son in you know ways we didn't have growing up as much as possible. That's remarkable and what was your family's relationship as the years uh, grew on? Mm. Uh, did they have were they willing to have a relationship with your son <laughs> and when they started seeing that you were going back to school mm. that started oh to gosh. affect the relationship that you had with your parents but also really with your son as grandparents. Right. And, you know, as we discussed, I wasn't a remarkable student or child growing up. So I think after the pregnancy, after moving out, there was probably little hope for me. <laughs> and, um, you know, the family or the community that knew me, if they knew that I was pregnant. Um, my parents actually, you know, after I moved out, I was disowned. Um, and you know that is uh if you've seen it in the community it's you know like i'm dead to them <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, so my sisters couldn't mention me anymore um or recognize me when i went into labor and gave birth um it was just me and my partner now my sister um my middle sister she we've always been really really close and she would sneak to see me all the time like sneak over and my mom actually too like i mentioned we we have this close relationship but it's in some ways it's not direct like mother daughter sharing bonding i just 
knew there was parts of her as a woman, as a mother that um, I could relate to that uh, she couldn't directly just say, like, I'm sure she wanted to be there for me um, during my pregnancy, but uh, that would be seen as supporting me and mm -hmm. encouraging it to my dad. So she shows in a, a tight situation there. But, you know, after I moved away, she did sneak out to see me and she cooked me foods and brought it over when she wasn't, um, when she was able to and when uh, I was in her good graces. <laughs> so um, it wasn't all, you know, bad, uh, vicious disowning. It, it was more so... Mm -hmm. um, I knew my dad didn't want to see or talk to me or allow the family to do so. And after about three years, <laughs> uh, my son was three and, um, you know, we were slowly um, building um, some security in the family to raise my son. And he was starting to have memory um, in terms of at an age where he would remember. It was important to me that... Um, he had, because I didn't grow up with grandparents or a lot of family. The only people yeah. who are blood related to me is my mom, my dad, and my two sisters. Those are the only people I can say are my biological family here. Um, so for um, the aspect of uh, relationships and um, family dynamics, I wanted my son to have that. And so I um, uh, pretty much formally um, asked my dad if we could do a family reunion of some sort. And my mom and my sister, um, my middle sister, Sini, she um, had always been, had always continued the relationship with me. You know, they had kind of given me um, the green light to say that he probably wouldn't blow up or his his heart had melted a little bit after three years um and then we had a meeting i uh, went over with my mm -hmm. son and um well my dad has seen my son before <laughs> the three years but um it was like my son was just a few months old and um my dad still wasn't accepting of my partner and my son's father at the time so I had made the decision to say that I wasn't coming back home or, you know, like he had yeah. wanted me to just like, now that I had a baby, he actually, oh, I really, <laughs> I know they're going to hate me for saying this. Um, but like, you know, I don't want to paint my picture. I don't want to paint my dad in a picture where it's just, he's this like monster ogre or like really heartless person. He's one of the most compassionate people I know. Mm. Um, it's just, I understand there's certain um, personalities and even you know character flaws that people may have that um, you can't control and they may not be able to change. Um, so I've really learned with him to learn and take from him what I can that I really love and I can learn from and grow from and the things that are uh, toxic or violent or um, abusive or negative, I try to um, distance myself or uh, make clear that it is not okay with me, but I don't, you know, like, I don't um, 
shun him about it. I just, I don't. Um, you had to protect yourself and your son right. in a way, because especially given what you had to experience from your dad growing up, right. you were afraid to have your son be experienced experiencing what you had to deal with right as a child right right so i mean it, it's it's very natural or it seems very natural especially uh, what you had to do to protect your son as a mother and and also knowing that your relationship uh with your son is going to put you at risk with your father in, in mm-hmm. a sense that you also had to protect yourself as a person too oh, wow. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Sina Sam. So be on the lookout for part two of my interview with Sina. And I hope that you have enjoyed this wonderful interview so far. And be sure to check out other episodes of the Bunby Chronicles podcast. Also follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles or on my Facebook page, uh, which you can find under Bunby Chronicles. Thank you and have a wonderful day.